Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good morning. Thanks, guys. Appreciate what you do. For those of you who don't know me, My name's Brett. Um, I'm serving as senior pastor here at the moment, um, just for the next couple of weeks, and the big man gets back. So we're um, obviously in our series, um, the I Am series, talking about Jesus' I Am statements from the Gospel of John um, this morning. And as we begin this morning, I just want to remind us of what our hoped outcomes are for this series. Now, these are always my hoped outcomes whenever I preach, but I want to be really specific about what these outcomes are that I'm hoping for, not not for me, but for everyone here. And so my hope for this series is that we will deepen our understanding of what Christ did and what Christ said in order to deepen our understanding of who Christ is. Because they're not the same thing. And it's not so that we can simply have a more knowledge or a greater understanding of all of those things. But I hope, our hope, my hope is that that then translates into a deeper relationship with him, a deeper trust of him, deeper intimacy in our relationship. And then as Aaron said earlier, all of that then overflows and then reflects in how we treat each other and how and what we think of ourselves. And our message this morning, or our passage this morning, hints at the very heart of all of that. So we find ourselves in the second chapter of, or the second section of John chapter 10, um, speaking about Jesus' statement, I am the good shepherd. Now, if you were here last week, um, you'll know that Matt spoke about the first I am statement in John chapter 10, I am the gate. And because obviously these two statements are obviously quite closely interlinked because they're in the same chapter and in the same dialogue statement from Jesus. Um, There's going to be some crossover information. Um, I'm going to try and... But what I'm trying to do is just allow the text to say what it says, irrespective of if I'm repeating something that um, Matt has said. We obviously always know that most of you aren't listening most of the time and you won't retain most of what you've heard. And that's okay... (laughs) It's just the natural consequence of public speaking, okay? Because now you're all thinking about, oh, what am I having for lunch and, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's okay. That's why we have podcasts, um, which none of you listen to. But uh, (laughs) I'm joking. Just as an aside as that, we now have our podcast, I now put our podcast on Spotify, So if you go onto our website, there's a link to our Spotify account. So if you don't like having to go watch the video again, our podcasts are now on Spotify. Um, Cool. 
So Matt last week read the entirety of chapter 9. Um, and this was regarding how Jesus healed the blind man who was blind from birth. Now, if you remember the story, I'm not going to reread it, but he was blind, Jesus comes to him, he spits in the dirt, rubs it on his eyes, he goes and is told to go wash his eyes, and then he can see again. And then obviously what happens is everyone celebrated the fact that that was a miracle and that everyone got along with Jesus forever again. That's clearly what happened, yeah? No. So the Pharisees get involved and go about trying to discredit what had actually happened. Asking the man, well, you know, was he really blind from birth? Is it really the same guy? Got his parents involved going, is this really your son? Was he really blind? And in the midst of all of that, the man stands his ground, gives them a bit of flack back as best you can, as best he could, and their response was that they threw him out. That's what the passage says. Now... Excommunication, sorry, yeah, to be excommunicated from a local synagogue was a big thing. It wasn't like you did something wrong here in New Spring and we had a very serious conversation and you were unrepentant for it, so we had to ask you to move on. Now, that's never happened, at least in my time here, so... It's not a regular thing. But let's just say that it did happen. Well, what could you do? You could literally go five minutes down the road and start going there instead and be really, really quiet about you ever coming to New Spring so they'll never call us and ask, why did this guy get kicked out, right? But if you were thrown out of synagogue, that was a huge deal. Because it wasn't just that you couldn't practice your religion anymore, is that you were thrown out of community. It was, think about a world where your ability to offer your offerings to God and communicate to your God was completely cut off. Think about that in those times, people were not allowed to enter in uh, like a six-foot sort of sphere of you. They had to stay physically away from you. It was complete isolation. So Jesus does this miracle for this man, and the result of that was the synagogue going, you are out completely from our lives, forever, sometimes. Sometimes it was just for a period of time. But then in John chapter 35, John chapter 9, verse 35, after this man has just been excommunicated, what happens? Jesus goes and does the very thing he shouldn't do and goes and speaks to him. And he doesn't go, oh, there, there. Sorry about that. But you can at least see. <laughs> we'll call that an overall win. win. <laughs> Jesus then accepts him into the community of his followers. So someone who was rejected by his community has been accepted 
by Jesus, wholly and fully. And as Matt said last week, these chapter numbers and stuff all happened after the text. So this is actually, it's almost from chapter 7, it's almost one complete story. It doesn't delineate between chapter 9 and chapter 10 in the original text. And so it would seem, and and it seems to be true, that all of the discourse of Jesus' words in chapter 10 are actually to the very Pharisees who he's been dealing with in chapter 9. So they answer his disciples. Jesus proclaiming that he's the gate and he's the good shepherd isn't to his in crowd. It's to the very people who have just thrown out this blind man who's now not blind anymore. And there are a number of questions that are raised in chapter 9. Is Jesus God or not? Is he a prophet or not? Is he Messiah or not? Is he the son of man whom God will set as judge over the world or not? And so we have to assume if this is one long dialogue that he answers some of those questions, if not all of those questions, in the next chapter. So let's see if he actually does that. So we're going to start reading. Excuse me. Um, from John chapter 10, verse 1. So this is Jesus speaking. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from from him because they don't know the voice of the stranger. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, I I truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he has not so since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father." 
So the idea of what a shepherd is in Jesus' day is so far outside of our context. We have absolutely no idea, especially as Australians, what it means to be a shepherd. Um, My father-in-law, Greg, is a sheep and wheat farmer. Um, Now, I had never dealt with sheep before, thankfully, because I don't like sheep. (laughs) (laughs) And the first time we went to Marnie's farm, um, it's just north of Geraldton, um, like it was an eye-opener about how they have to deal with their sheep. Now, you'll remember how, hopefully last week, how Matt described the communal sheepfold, like different shepherds putting their sheep um, or their flocks into the pens by night, and in the morning, and apparently this still happens today, the shepherd will go into a crowded sheepfold and call out his sheep individually, and they come to him, and then he goes and takes them away. And they say that, I know, say, you know, oh, this sheep is called Brutus, and it's like, come on, Brutus, let's go. And if I'm not Brutus's shepherd, Brutus won't come. It's only the shepherds of the sheep that they'll follow. Now, the, like I said, the Australian context of having sheep couldn't be any further from the truth or from the reality of this. So my father-in-law's sheep, they don't know his voice. They certainly don't run to him. Um, they spend their lives perpetually running from absolutely everything and everyone. Even just going for a walk around the paddock, if you're in sort of sniffing distance, like they, is enough to send them scattering. But for a Jewish shepherd, the sheep recognise his voice and come to him. And he knows them. And they know him. So here in our passage this morning, in chapter 10, Jesus refers to himself as the gate and as the good shepherd. Now, both images have to do with salvation. As Matt dealt with last week, when Jesus brings us to the Father, he refers to himself as the gate. Jesus is the one way of entrance into salvation the one way by which the sheep may enter the safety of the fold. And the gate to the life of the kingdom of God, which is given to those who come to the Father through him and and receive eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. That's a big statement. And the emphatic way in which Jesus uses the I am here emphasizes that the shepherd is the sole determiner of who enters the fold and who doesn't. And it parallels the latest statement that Jesus makes. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's John chapter 14. Now it's important to note here that the metaphor is not one of exclusion. It's not a license to think of ourselves as Jesus' true sheep and everyone else is outsiders. That's not the economy here. 
Verse 16 tells us that Jesus has more sheep to include. And the gate that is that of inclusion and protection and guarding against all that threatens the well-being of the sheep. So let's not get on our high horse and say, well, they're this and they're that, and they're not Christians or they're not following Jesus and all that sort of stuff, so therefore they're out. We actually don't have the right to make that judgment because we don't know. You don't know what's happening. And when Jesus takes care of us, he refers to himself as the shepherd. Here he refers to himself as the good shepherd. And the word good is important here. Because when we hear the word good, we think of like a virtuous person. Good morals, noble, upright, worthy, decent. That's how our first world Western brains associate the word good. Well, at least mine does anyway. But the English word here doesn't sort of catch the full meaning of what the word John has written here. So the word John uses here can also mean beautiful. And yet again, it doesn't mean good looking. It doesn't mean physical attractiveness. It's about the sheer attractiveness of what Jesus as the shepherd is doing. When Jesus calls, people want to come. When they realize that Jesus died for them, they want to come even more. And the point of calling Jesus the good shepherd is to emphasize the strange, compelling power of his love. Now, the biblical picture of the shepherd is quite interesting in the Old Testament. The picture of the shepherd with his sheep is frequently used to refer to the ideal king and his people. Psalm 23 opens up with the statement, the Lord is my shepherd. Jeremiah speaks of gathering the nation as a flock of sheep that has been scattered. Chapter 23. Isaiah chapter 40 We'll actually read it, starting at verse 9. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See the Lord comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Do you see the, the beautiful, wonderful picture of intimacy of the, the shepherd God with his people? It's something of trust. It's something of reliance. Ezekiel 34 gives us a slightly different picture of false shepherds as opposed to God. Now, the chapter begins 
with God reprimanding the faithless shepherds of Israel. They have been ruling to feed themselves um, and not the flock. They haven't looked after the flock, and as a result, the flock has scattered and gone astray. Remember, we're talking about people here. Ezekiel 34, we'll start at verse 11. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day, he is among his scattered flock. So I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing places will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. It's the Lord God who takes it upon himself, the role of shepherd of the flock. And he does this in the view of the faithlessness of the shepherds of Israel. In their place of devastating rule, he brings salvation to his flock. Now, Ezekiel chapter 34 is quite interesting, though, because further on in verses 23 to 24, the Lord refers to his servant David as the shepherd. So this raises a couple of questions. Firstly, who is this David guy? Now, Ezekiel was written after King David had lived. So who is this person who he is referring to? And the second question that it raises is sometimes the prophet, that's Ezekiel, speaks of God becoming the true shepherd of Israel, but then of this David character becoming the shepherd. So which is it? Is it God or is it David? So the first question, when David is referred to in the Old Testament like this, It does not and cannot mean that King David, the physical person who once lived on this earth, would in person revive and reappear. He's not talking about that. But it refers to Messiah, the seed of David. David also means beloved one. So the one coming after David in the human lineage of David who is a kingly figure like David and who is beloved by God will be the shepherd of God's flock. And then the second question is, well, who's going to be the shepherd? Is God the shepherd or is Messiah the shepherd? And Ezekiel raises these questions, if not directly, at least indirectly, and then doesn't answer them. He just sort of leaves them hanging. 
And it's not actually until our chapter here in John chapter 10 that all the pieces start to be put back together again and they begin to start to see the answer that Ezekiel raised hundreds of years before. So who is the shepherd? Is God the shepherd or is Messiah the shepherd? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Gotcha. God is the shepherd and the Messiah is the shepherd. And Jesus answers this question for us in John chapter 10, verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. God is the shepherd. The king is the shepherd. And this seemingly contradicting play on words that has happened for generations only makes sense in Jesus and nowhere else. So let me say it in another way and then we can hopefully sort of unpack it from the text. So the saving activity of God takes place through his representative Jesus. Remember that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Jesus displays the full character of the Father because he and the Father are one. It is in the Father's name that Jesus is the gate. He is the one way by which the sheep may enter the safety of the fold. And it is in the Father's name that Jesus is the shepherd, that he cares for the sheep of Israel's flock and he also gathers the sheep of the Gentile folds. And it is in the Father's name that he lays down his life and takes it up again for the redemption of all of mankind. That they may all become one flock under one shepherd. Now, we've been getting into it a little bit over these last few weeks, but and we haven't really named it. But we're actually getting into some really pretty significant theology here. So we're looking at what theologians call the hypostatic union. That Jesus is fully man and fully God. He's calling himself the bread of life. He's calling himself the light of the world. He's calling himself the gate. He's calling himself the, the good shepherd. How can a man in his own strength, if he's of his right mind, ever claim to be those things. And so we're actually starting to delve into this idea that God, or that Jesus is fully man and fully God at the same time. And trying to explain that is trying to explain the unexplainable. It's trying to understand the ununderstandable. Theologians for generations have been trying to understand the dichotomy of Jesus being fully man and fully God. Because if you could understand it, that puts you over God, which means you can understand God, which none of us can do because we obviously have finite brains. And another thing we're actually looking at when it's talking about significant theology is that we're actually looking at Trinitarian theology. Trying to explain how the Godhead works. How is... 
how is it one God but three persons? How do the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all relate to each other? What does that even look like, and how does it work out? We don't understand those things, because yet again, it's something ununderstandable and unexplainable. And I can talk to you about, you know, an egg and a shell and a yolk and all that sort of stuff and the ice and steam and water. Like, there are a whole bunch of examples that you can sort of use and all of them fall short because we actually don't understand it. However, Jesus in his words here and in the words of this entire series are delving into these things because he's talking about his status before the Father in a way that a normal human could never possibly ever describe or claim to be because none of us are God. So I just want to say, if you're going, what on earth are you talking about, Brett, when I talk about that he's a shepherd and stuff like that? Don't worry. Most of us are on the same page that we actually don't understand it because it's unexplainable. That's where trust and faith start to come in. And although we don't often talk about theology, this is where our passages are taking us. Because that's what Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And in being able to understand this sort of stuff, or at least have an awareness that those things are happening and that those things are the undercurrent of everything that Jesus is saying, is helping us understand who Jesus is more and therefore we can have a deeper relationship with who he is. We don't have one God who has different faces and I want to talk to the Father so that he puts his mask on or I'm the Son and... And or he puts his sun mask on or the Holy Spirit mask. That's called modalism. That's not what we believe in. So let's look at this passage a tiny bit deeper. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep or for the sheep. Laying down of life for the sheep is quite an interesting phrase. It means a voluntary sacrificial death, a laying aside, a stripping off. And the word implies here more than just simply his physical existence. It involves personality, often more more frequently translated as soul. So the good shepherd stands ready to sacrifice his total self for his sheep. Not just to die and, have, and not to be physically present anymore. Verses 14 to 18, let me read them again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Just, I have a challenge for you this week. Go and read verse 15. Just as the father knows me 
and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then read it again, and then read it again, and then read it again. And allow it to bypass your brain and start to permeate your heart and your soul. And it's, it is a verse that is so profound that we read over it and go, oh yeah, he knows the Father and the Father knows him. I challenge you this week to read that on a daily basis and see if it doesn't change your life. So these verses are well, in this section where Jesus actually gets to the heart of his earthly mission. And it's that of relationship. So when in verse 14, when he says, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, this isn't just... I have some awareness of the facts of this person. It isn't, I've spent almost 19 years with Marnie married, and I know her probably better than anyone else on the planet, and she knows me, I hope, better than anyone else on the planet. And it's not just the facts that I know about Marnie, it's not the facts of how much I know Aaron or how much I know Matt or anybody else and how much they share about themselves. It's this idea of this deep, intimate knowledge that they know that other person better than that person knows themselves. It's not a knowledge of, but an experience of. And this idea of an intimate relationship is not only woven through this whole passage, but through John's entire gospel. When we read verses 3 and 4, the gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. So these verses presuppose an intimate mutual relationship. The sheep know the name of their shepherd and the shepherd know their name. John chapter 15 verse 9 speaks of an intimate relationship of Jesus and the Father. John chapter 17. So the start of John chapter 17, Jesus starts praying. He starts to pray for himself. And then from verse 6, he prays for his disciples. And then from verse 20, he prays for all believers. So verse 20 says, I pray not only for these, but I also pray for, the, for who believe in me through their word. 
So he's been praying for the disciples, and then he's, and then he's like, and I pray for not only my disciples, but I also pray for everyone who believes because of the things that they've heard from the disciples. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, so that they may be as one as we are. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be, com- they may be made completely one, that, they, that the world may know you. Uh, that they, sorry. It's getting really hot in here. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one and the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I'll keep going on that in a sec. But can you start to see the grasp, the intimacy of the language? I know you, you know me, I'm in you, you're in me, I'm in them. It's, there's this deeper, more profound relationship that's going on than just, oh yeah, I know what this person does for a living and that sort of stuff. There is this intimate relational connection that we're talking about here. And you may be wondering why I'm banging on about this, because this is the heart of the gospel that Jesus is talking about here. We'll go on. Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundations. So we're under the impression, some of us are, that the Father loves the Son and the Son is obedient to the Father because of what's happened here on earth. That the father loves the son because the son was obedient to him and that the son was obedient to the father because he realised that the father loved him. So it says here though that you have loved me before the foundations of the world. So the son's obedience to the father is not because of something that's happened here on earth but it's because it's something that's always happened for eternity forever. The son's been obedient to the father forever. And the father has loved the son forever, not because of what the son has done. Righteous father, verse 25. The world has not known you, however I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them, and they will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. And why do we do all of this? What is the point of all of this? That the Father loved the Son before the foundations of the world were laid, that the Son has been obedient to the Father since before the foundations of the world were laid, that He is in the Father, the Father is in Him, He is in us. Why is all of that happening? Verse 21. May they all be as one as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe. 
Christianity is one generation away from being extinct all of the time. Our responsibility all of the time is to tell the next generation about Jesus. The reason why you know about Jesus is because the generations before us have been obedient to this word. And they've told their kids about it. And their kids have told their kids about it. So our responsibility as Christians is not so we can live a good life or a blessed life or throw in the adjective life. Is that they may believe. Your kids. Your kids' kids. And the thing is, we say we want to hand down a better life, better wealth, a better, you know, all that sort of stuff. They're actually saying now that the generation that's being born now will be the first generation in living history that may live a worse life than their parents because of economics and blah, blah, blah. All of that is separate and subsequent to the most important thing. And that is telling our children and telling our friends about who Christ is. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. I give you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you, that you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That relationship, as even what Aaron was talking about earlier on, is reflected in how we treat each other, how we love each other. You can't think people into the kingdom. You can't headbutt them into the kingdom. It doesn't work that way. The way people understand who Christ is is because he reflects the glory of who the Father is. And the way that people understand who the Son is is because we are to reflect the love that is in between the Father and the Son. That is our job. So back in John chapter 10, the entire plan is motivated by Jesus' love for the Father and his readiness to carry out his Father's purpose. And verse 17 and 18 tell us that he has total authority over what's happening and what will happen forever. My translation says that he has the right to lay down his life and the right to take it up again. His death was wholly voluntary and only the son of the father could and will take up his life again. When Jesus uses the words authority or the right, it means that he was not some helpless victim of his enemy's violence but that he'd been born with both the right and the power to become the instrument of reconciliation between man and God and between Jew and Gentile. 
And all of this was motivated by his love for the Father. All of it was motivated by this intimate, self-giving relationship. So how do we land this? took me a while to work out where we were going to end. So let's go back to the blind man. So he receives his sight and the Pharisees who were supposed to care and protect and nourish him instead expel him for refusing to believe that Jesus and his healing work could or would come from God. They are more concerned about guarding their power and authority than about the well-being of the people. For the blind man, salvation is not only about receiving physical sight, but also about receiving spiritual sight. Recognizing who Jesus is, believing in him, and becoming a part of his community. The blind man recognized the voice of the shepherd and came running. Chapter 9, verses 38. I believe, Lord, he says, and he worshipped him. So you want to know and follow Jesus? Listen for his voice and follow. Are you feeling isolated and alone? Listen for his voice and follow. Are you being attacked by thieves and robbers? Listen for his voice and follow. And we spoke a couple of weeks ago about Jesus giving the living water as opposed to this stale, moldy water that we try and live off and we think will give us life. And the difference of the internal wellspring of abundant water and the life that Jesus is giving you. John chapter 10, verse 10. I have come so that may have life and life in abundance. So Christ becomes our life. And this isn't a life of lack and poverty, but it's a life of abundance and full joy. It's a life that enables us to have an intimate, trusting and loving relationship with the creator of the world. That we're accepted into the community, just as the blind man was. Into the life and the flock of the shepherd who loves and protects us. Let us pray.